Today's passage is going to be in Matthew chapter 4. So if you are able, would you please turn there and stand with me as we read the Word of God, the inerrant, infallible, perfect Word of God. And these very words are equal to if Jesus himself were standing here and reading them to us. Beginning in verse 12, reading through verse 17. Now when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These are the words of our God. Please have a seat. Good morning, brothers and sisters. We have a chance to encounter our Savior this morning, face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me start out this How many Lord of the Rings fans do we have in here? Lord of the Rings. My mind went to Lord of the Rings when I thought about this text, and specifically, if you've read the book or you've seen the second movie of the trilogy, The Two Towers, and if you remember this scene, there's a massive scene toward the ends where the forces of Sauron and Saruman, they come descending on Rohan at their fortress, and they were, they were overcoming the kingdom of Rohan. And then at the end, the future king of Gondor, Aragorn, mounts a horse, tells the king of Rohan, let's ride out to meet them. And I think, in his mind, he was remembering the words of the good guy Gandalf. Gandalf told him this before he left five days prior to find more troops. Look to my coming on the first light of the fifth day. Anybody remember that? At dawn, look to the east. And sure enough, when it seemed like all hope was lost, the sun was rising in the east. Aragorn looked up, and coming over the crest of the mountain was Gandalf and this massive army behind them, and they descended upon their enemies, and they conquered them. Victory. Light. Overcoming darkness. That's the theme of this morning's message. That's what I thought about when I thought about this text, but this, this is a different kind of deliverance. This is a different kind of light. This is the one who called himself the light of the world. And he's coming, and he's coming to deliver his people out of darkness and death. Amen. Hallelujah. And I can't wait to dive into this text. Brothers and sisters, I love what one person said about this text. Here's what they said. This is it. This is the right time. This is the right place. This is the right 
person. This is the right message. Because we're seeing the dawn of the Messianic era. We're seeing the dawn of the Messiah Himself coming into this dark world. And He is that light who will dispel the darkness. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we see in this text. But before we jump into this text, I think maybe we got to get a little bit better of a bearing maybe on the chronology of our Lord's ministry. Meaning, did He leave? Verse 1, right after His baptism and temptations when He heard about John the Baptist. Now some say, maybe. But I'm thinking probably not for two reasons. Number one, in John's Gospel, we know that Jesus hung around the Jordan for a couple of days. John the Baptist talked about Jesus on three consecutive days. Saying on day one, He who comes after Me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Then on the second day, John 1.29, He saw Jesus coming toward Him and He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then, on day three, Verse 35, it says that John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as Jesus walked by and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And then as we walk through John's Gospel, specifically chapters 3 and 4, in chapter 3 we hear John saying this, He must increase and I must decrease. And so he tells his disciples, follow him. And so what I'm seeing here is that the forerunner is phasing off of the scene and the Messiah is becoming more and more prominent. And so he still does ministry. In chapters 3 and 4 in the Gospel of John, maybe overlapping with the choosing of the disciples. We're going to see that next week in Matthew's Gospel, right down below where you're at today. And so some people say there was probably a year of obscurity in our Master. He's doing ministry in Judea for about a year before, before this happens in Matthew's text. And you've got to remember some things. When you're reading the Bible, when you're reading the Gospels, don't the Gospel writers focus on different things? John has a, he has a particular focus. And his focus comes in chapter 20. He wanted to write down all of the miracles and the claims that he thought was necessary, or I should say the Spirit thought was necessary, for the people to know so that the people would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in His name, you will have eternal life. That's why he wrote his Gospel. Matthew, largely for the same reason, writes these things. But Matthew is focused on the Jews. Remember, he's focused on Jewish readers. So what does he hone in on? And I think this is why he goes where he goes at this point in time. He hones in on fulfillment. Fulfillment of what? The Old Testament. The Jewish Bible. That's what they read. And that's what they're looking for in the Messiah. So that's what Matthew 
That's what he's focusing on. And I think there could be a period of time in here. Because if you look at the text, he says, now when he heard, when he heard, Jesus could have been around for a while doing ministry, but when he heard about John the Baptist, time to leave this area. John's ministry is done. My ministry is done in this area. Time to move on. And so with that background, let's watch. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's watch the dawning of our King. The dawning of our King coming to Capernaum and preaching. Preaching. This is the first that we see Him preaching and proclaiming. But right now, this is the right time to leave where He's at. Verse 12, when He heard that John had been arrested, He withdrew into Galilee. And again, as you're reading this, don't think this is right after his temptations. John's in prison. Time to go. I've got to get out of there. This is just where Matthew picks up his public ministry. We don't know exactly when Jesus heard about John's arrest. We don't even know how he heard about it. But he heard about it nonetheless. And we're going to get there in Matthew's Gospel. But Matthew chapter 14 details the arrest, the imprisonment, and the beheading of John the Baptist. Do you remember that account? Let me fill you in a little bit. He was arrested because, because Herod broke God's law. He took his brother Philip's wife. His brother divorced his wife. Herod divorced his wife. And he went and took his brother's wife. And John the Baptist comes along. He says, you broke God's law. It is not right that you have her as a wife. And again, I'm thinking, John, he's just a fiery dude, man. But let me, when I read that and I think about that, I think to myself, you know what? Sometimes we need to call things out. He did. Sometimes I think we Christians, we just talk about, we've got to tell everybody what we're for. We can never tell them what, they're, what we're against. Yes, we do tell them what we're against. When it's against God's law, we point it out. We say it's wrong. Now I guarantee you that John probably told him to repent. Get right with God. Obviously he didn't. Threw John into prison. But this is where Matthew, this is where he picks it up. This is what he's talking about. The arrest of John the Baptist. And according to Josephus, anybody ever hear of this guy? Josephus. He was around at that time. He was a Jewish historian. He wrote about this. He said, John was imprisoned at Herod's fortress palace that was built on top of a steep hill east of the Jordan River. And again, that leads me to believe that Jesus, He was in that area. He was doing ministry for about a year and then He heard this news and something triggered in the Lord Jesus to leave that area. And some people, when they read that, on the surface of it, they might think to themselves, was He afraid? Was Jesus in fear? They arrested John! Oh no! Anybody associated with John? John preached about me! They're going to come after me! Let me ask you something. When you read the Gospels, do you ever see Jesus afraid of anybody? Never. Never. At one point, 
even his opponents, even his opponents said this, Teacher, we know that you are true. You do not care about anyone's opinion. (laughs) You don't care about anyone's opinion. Nobody scares you at all. You're not influenced by anybody. Teacher, we know that you are true. You do not care about anyone's opinion. And said, you're not swayed by appearances. Mark 12. Boy, I wish I had more of that. Nobody influences me unless they're giving me God's Word. But I fear God, not any man. That was our Lord. So, I don't think he was afraid. And by the way, Herod, Herod controlled most of Galilee. He could have went anywhere and arrested Jesus. If Jesus was afraid, he would have went back to Egypt. And he doesn't. Now, some say, well, because there's other times in the Bible, remember, that they came, they tried to get Jesus in whatever shape or form, and he just disappears, or he just leaves, or they can't arrest him. And they say it wasn't his time yet. Remember reading that in the Bible? It's not yet his time It's time for what? To die. But I don't think that's it here either. There might be a little bit of hint of that. But that was mostly his interactions with the religious leaders. It wasn't Herod. It was the Pharisees that he would really stir up. And it wasn't Herod. So, then what is it? Here's what I think it is. I think it's God's plan. I think it's God's purpose, especially from the prophecy brothers and sisters jesus jesus was on a mission he was always on a mission he did everything on purpose nothing's a coincidence he always did what his father wanted him to do he always said what his father wanted him to say always even his death he said in john 10 Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to take it back up again. This charge I received from my Father. Brothers and sisters, nobody controls our Lord except for the Father. He's in charge of absolutely everything, including including His leaving and going to Capernaum. And this... This was to fulfill a prophecy that was made 700 to 800 years before the Lord Jesus even walked the earth. Look at verses 13 and 14. Leaving Nazareth, He went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now, look at the text. Look at what it says. What does it say right away? In verse 13, it says he was leaving Nazareth. You remember what Nazareth was. That was the place where he grew up, right? And if you remember Matthew's account in chapter 2, this is where Joseph went to live in Nazareth after he fled because the king wanted to kill the Christ child. He's slaughtering babies. So the angel comes to him and says, Go to Egypt. That Herod dies angel says to Joseph, go back. They go back, but Joseph realizes something, that now Herod the son is ruling, and he's just as awful. And so they go to Nazareth, fulfilling Scripture. Remember? Jules preached on this. He shall be called a Nazarene. 
verse 23 in chapter 2. But by this time, right here, right now, he's all grown up. John the Baptist prepares the way. Jesus gets baptized. He's tempted by the devil. He lives in the area of Judea for about a year, does miracles. Then he goes to Galilee. We saw that in verse 12. Then leaves Nazareth, which is in the Galilean region. But that tells me he was in Nazareth for a period of time. And I love this account in Luke. You know what Luke says? He returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and came to Nazareth. He came to Nazareth. Follow me. I'm in Gospel Luke now. But listen to this. This is where we're at. We're in Nazareth. And as it was his custom, do you remember this? He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Jesus. And he read Isaiah 61 that said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And the eyes, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Jesus. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Meaning, I am that Messiah that Isaiah is talking about. And then Luke goes on to write, the people spoke well of him. They marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth until this happened. Wait, is not this Joseph's son? We saw him grow up. Other Gospels talk about brothers, sisters, aren't they here with us? How can this be the Messiah? He's just an ordinary man. Oh, and then Jesus talks about a prophet in his hometown. Then he exposes their sinful condition. And they take him to the brow of the hill. Do you remember this? And they try to kill him. And he escapes. How does he do that? I don't know. What did he do? I know that he's anointed by the Spirit. I know he's Jesus. But he just walked right out, right between them. Anyway, I love thinking about that kind of stuff. So, that's where we're at. In Nazareth. And then, right after Nazareth, he goes to Capernaum. And this is where Matthew picks it up in verse 13. Leaving Nazareth, he went and he lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali. So if you have your geography, just think with me a little bit. This is north. You've got Jerusalem down here. Jordan River flows up. Sea of Galilee. You've got the region of Galilee. Capernaum's on the north end of the sea. It actually means village of Nahum. Nahum ring a bell? Maybe because of the prophet. And if you translate the prophet's name, Nahum, it actually means compassion. So I'm asking myself, maybe these people were nice. I don't know. We'll find out. Josephus, he was actually a governor of Galilee at one time. I don't know if you knew this, but here he wrote this. This area was rich in soil and pasture, producing every variety of tree, inviting by its productivity, even those who have the least inclination of agriculture. That would have been me. I don't know how to farm. It's okay. You can do it here. 
It is everywhere tilled and productive. And of course, fish is plentiful near the Sea of Galilee. This is the city of Capernaum by the sea, Matthew says. A prosperous city. This is where we find our very own dear Matthew's tax collector's booth in Capernaum. We're going we're to see that in chapter 9, verse 9. So this is where Jesus is living at the moment. I'm going to say the comments about Zebulon and Naphtali when we get to the quote in verse 15. But where does he quote? Where does this quote come from? It comes from Isaiah. Listen, chapter 9. Chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. This is what Matthew points out. Next in verse 14. Let me read it for you from Isaiah. Remember, this is 800 years before Christ. In the former time, this is Isaiah, he brought into contempt God brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Keep that in mind when we get to Matthew's quote. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And brothers and sisters, if you back up to the end of chapter 8 of Isaiah's prophecy, he will talk about how the Assyrians came in and conquered that land and darkness filled But then, he proclaims in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, a glorious new day will dawn with the Messiah's coming. He's coming. Brothers and sisters, chapter 9 of Isaiah. Don't we love that at Christmas time? For to us a what is born. Child, a son, he shall be called. Wonderful counselor, mighty God. This is the same chapter. And now, this is it. This is it. This is the right time in Matthew. This is the dawning of the new messianic era. This is the dawning of the Messiah's arrival. This is what Isaiah prophesied. And that's why this man Jesus is the only one to fit the bill. Jesus and Jesus alone. Think about all of the fulfillments we have seen already. Born of a virgin, like the Old Testament said in Isaiah 7. Born in Bethlehem, like the Old Testament said in Micah 5. Prepared by the Baptist, the forerunner in the spirit and power of Elijah. Told to us in the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. 
anointed by the Spirit, affirmed by the Father, doing miracles in Judea. Isaiah 61, brothers and sisters, now he's living in the land of Zebulon and Naphtali, just like the Old Testament said. You cannot make this up. You can't make this up, brothers and sisters. Like I challenged the Jewish professor, and I know there's other thoughts out there that they just said the disciples... They thought, Jesus, oh, He's pretty good. He's doing a lot of things. Let's, let's make all of these Old Testament things try to fit His life. That's what they tried to do. That's what they, that's what they argued. That Jesus wasn't really the Messiah. They just took His life, a couple of things that He did, and they took all of these Old Testament prophecies, and they tried to make it fit His life. And I'm saying, how do you do that with a virgin birth? Right? How do you do that with miracles? You cannot make this up. He fulfilled prophecy after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. He's it. He's it. That is why you can trust the Bible. You can trust it completely. Prophecy is one way you can trust it completely. Just like John said, I wrote these things down so that you may believe. I'll broaden that out. God gave us the rest of the Gospels to fill in the gaps. To point these things out like Matthew and the prophecy so that you would believe that my Son is Jesus Christ. I'll broaden that out to the Bible. These are all written about Him. That's our Christ, our Lord, fulfilling prophecy after prophecy. This one included living in Capernaum. Verse 15, so that he could fulfill this prophecy. Here's Matthew's quote. The land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, couple things about this area. If you remember your Old Testament reading in Joshua, Zebulon, Naphtali, part of the tribes, and God split up the land to be given to the twelve tribes, including Zebulon and Naphtali. Same area, along the Sea of Galilee, the way of the sea, as Matthew says, beyond the Jordan River that connects to the Sea of Galilee. And then, and then he says this incredible, I think, most profound statement. Look at what he writes next. This is the Galilee of the Gentiles. <laughs> what? A book written for Jews. It can be translated as nations. That's what we read in Isaiah 9. So what happened? This is what I'm asking. What happened in this area north of Jerusalem? Is it not purely Jewish anymore? The answer is no. So here's the history. I'll give you a brief history. When it was given to the tribes, when it was given to the tribes, you know how Israel always obeyed God, right? Wrong. They neglected to eradicate the Canaanites out of the land. 
And you know what happens when you don't eradicate pagans out of the land. You intermarry, you adopt their practices, their culture, their religion. Then, later in 2 Kings, the king, Tiglath Pileser, he took a bunch of those tribes, those Jews captive, puts them out, puts a lot of Assyrians into the land, and other non-Jews into the land, making it a total melting pot. That's what we have here. However, there's still Jews that remain. So, the intertestamental period. You remember this time, 400 years between the Old and the New? Ever hear of the guy Maccabeus? This is the time that he rose up and he tried to lead a revolt in that land, but he got squashed. And so, what do you have left? You have heathen Gentiles and the Jews that are left... They were severely weakened in the Old Testament. They weren't even up on the Pharisaical traditions that were down south in Jerusalem. This is why they dogged anybody from Nazareth. Remember? Nathaniel, John chapter 2, the Messiah is from Nazareth. And what did he say? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Or John chapter 7, Jesus is crying out in the temple in Jerusalem, whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture said, out of His heart will flow rivers of living water. And when the people heard these words, some said, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? And then the Pharisees said, search and see. No prophet arises from Galilee. And I thought to myself, I thought you knew your Bible better than that. Didn't you read Isaiah 9? Or do you not know where Jonah comes from? He comes from there. So this is where our Lord is. This is where He has set up camp. And He begins His preaching ministry. Think about this. To the heathen Gentiles and the non-religious, less traditional Jews. Can you imagine that? Not in Jerusalem. And so I asked myself the question, why? And John LaRusso, you're going to love this. Because God is saving all kinds of Jews and also the nations. Starting here. This is where it all begins. Right here. Jesus isn't just going to save Jews in Jerusalem. He's going to save Jews up north. And He's also going to call Gentiles. And so here they are. Look at the prophecy in verse 16. These people are in darkness. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. I love Hebrew parallelism. I just do it. It says the same thing twice, but they repeat it for emphasis. Pointing certain things out. First, the people. The people. When that Greek word is used in the Bible, it's usually referring to the Jews. 
So these people are dwelling. You know what that word literally means? Sitting in it. And what are they sitting in? They're sitting in darkness. In darkness and the shadow of death. They're sitting in it, living in it, dwelling in it. They're dark. They're sinful. They're ignorant. That's what this means. And this isn't just a temporary, oh, they have a dark period for a couple of days or a couple of weeks. No, they are in it. They are in it. This is how they live. They are ignorant of God. They are ignorant of His ways. They are ignorant of His Word. So they're literally sitting in darkness and death. You know what darkness and death means. I ask my kids, what does darkness and death mean? Is it really dark there? (laughs) No, it doesn't mean literal darkness. It means they are so enslaved to sin, wrong belief, wrong thinking, confusion if they're Jews, have any idea of their Bible. They're confused like the woman at the well. They don't get the proper understanding of the Old Testament. Or, probably a lot of them, they intermingled. Who knows what they're worshiping, if they're worshiping at all. Adding their God to the other gods. And you know how that went for Israel in the Old Testament whenever they did that. Those other gods, they love wickedness. Lots of immortality. Brothers and sisters, these people have been dwelling in darkness, in sin, in the clutches of Satan. They are dead spiritually. They have no hope of God at all if they even think about Him. I'm thinking, man, oh man, I could relate to these people. Before Christ, the light came in and saved me. I can relate. Never gave a rip about God. I went to church. Heard his name, but that's about as far as it went. Give me the world. I love the world. I love the world's sin. The devil had me by the throat. Brothers and sisters, this is the human condition. This is the human condition. And sometimes I wonder if we really believe that, that we are dead in sin. That we really believe that the human heart is continually wicked all the time. That it's wicked and deceitful above all else. Prophets said those words. Jesus would come along and say they love darkness. They love darkness. They sit in it. They dwell in it. They live by it. And then here's what I thought to myself. These people are in trouble. These people are in trouble. They are in trouble with God. Just like I was in trouble with God. I didn't even know it. Look at the text carefully. The second line. It says they were living in the shadow of death. The shadow of death. I'm reading that. I'm thinking, okay, what does it mean to live in the shadow of death. Didn't reach death yet, but they're living in the shadow of death. To me, I'm thinking death is just around the corner. It's hanging over their head. And I'm not sure this means physical death. 
It could be physical death, but it leads to what? Spiritual death without God. Plunging into eternal hell without God. These people are in trouble. And everybody who are outside of the light, don't have the light, are in trouble. They are living in the shadow of death. Spiritual death is coming. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die. Jesus will say in the very next chapter, fools are liable to the hell of fire. Death is right around the corner. It's better that you lose one of your members that committed sin, He means. Cutting it off, gouging it out, rather than your whole body to go into hell and suffer eternal death forever and ever and ever away from the presence of the Lord paying for your sins that you have committed against Him. That is spiritual death every second for all of eternity. And that's where these people are. Hanging by a thread. And yet, God sends light. He sends light. He sends the illuminating light of the Lord Jesus Christ into the darkness of sin and Satan. And God says, His time has come. Come to the light. Come to My Son. Come and be delivered. Look at how the prophecy describes Jesus' arrival. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And I'm thinking to myself, what a gift to those Jews being there after 400 years of silence, darkness. And now God sends them the great light Himself. Brothers and sisters, this isn't just a light of some kind of prophet saying the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. This is the great light Himself. He's here. He's here. The great light. Now what does the light mean? It means this. Jesus is the very presence of the pure and holy and true light of the eternal God Himself. That's who our Lord Jesus is. The light of the world. This is how John described Him in chapter, chapter 1. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Light! Life! That is the Son of God. That is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Jesus calls Himself the light of the world. In John chapter 8, verse 12, He says, Anyone who follows Me shall never walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. You know when He was declaring that? This is incredible. Listen to this. He was declaring that in the temple at the conclusion of the Feast of Tabernacles. Here's what they were doing. They would celebrate the illumination of the temple with massive candelabras that commemorated the pillar of fire that led Israel during the wilderness wanderings. And Jesus now shows up, enters the temple, and says, I am that light! 
I'm the Messiah. And so now I'm thinking that any Jew reading this prophecy about his going to that region, if they're familiar with chapters 8 and 9 of Isaiah, they know what he's claiming. But then I'm looking at this and it says they have seen. But then I'm asking, have they? They see, but do they see? Do they see? We're not told. Do they see? We're going to find out as we go through the gospel. There is a seeing that is not seeing. You may see him with your physical eyes, but do you see him spiritually for who he really is? I'll wait on that. So he says in this prophecy that a light has dawned. They've seen a great light. They're in darkness. And so what does he do? What does our Lord do? You know what he does. I'm not going to go into great detail here. We don't have time. But you know what he does. Wherever Jesus goes, he's light. He's light. Think about his ministry. He goes into the darkness of wrong thinking and wrong belief. And he says the truth. He says the truth. He goes into the darkness of disease and sickness and He heals. He dispels. This is who He is. This is what He does. Then He goes to the cross and you know this. And He takes our sin. He takes our darkness. And He takes God's wrath that we deserve to pay in eternal hell. And He takes it. He gets punished with it. And He does away with it. And then he is buried and then he rises again. And then he ascends to where he is right now and he sends the Spirit to be with us to fight against the darkness. And now we've got power over the darkness. He's light. Sin is gone. Wrath is gone. Spirit is given. The penalty is gone. The power of sin over us broken in two. We still have the presence, but we have the power of the Spirit to put the deeds of the flesh to death. This is all light that our Lord Jesus has given to us, brothers and sisters. This is how He dispels darkness. So, how will you respond? This is what He does for people who respond. For people who respond to his message. And this message is the foundation of everything else he says in this gospel. Everything else. The nuts and bolts. Verse 17. And you need to take this as him speaking to you. He preached this message back then. He will continue to preach this. He dies, rises. Before he goes back, he says to the disciples, you need to preach this message. And you need to keep preaching this message all the way down to this day so that people will come to the light and be saved by the light. So you need to take this from Him as He sits up there right now, and you need to respond to Him through His Word right now. You need to respond to this. And you know the message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, repent, repent. Do you remember what that means? 
I'm not going to go into the full-blown detail, but they're the same message that John the Baptist preached. Repent! Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'll just tell you real quickly, do you remember the three C's? Go back and listen a couple of weeks ago. John the Baptist preached the same thing. It's three C's, repentance. What does it really mean? It means confession. The people came and they confessed their sins to God. Confession with contrition, meaning, ah, I was caught. No, not that you were caught, you do it all over again. No, you really feel bad for offending the God of the universe, your Creator, by breaking His law, thumbing your nose at Him, walking your own way. You are contrite. I'm sorry against you have I sinned. I don't want it anymore. And then you convert. Remember? You convert. You turn 180. I am not following the world anymore. My love affair was sin. I'm not following that anymore. Jesus, I want you. I'm following after you. That is repentance. And then Jesus says, you need to repent because the King is here. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is coming. It's near. It's upon you, brothers and sisters. When He says that, He is meaning that the King has come with the kingdom of heaven. He's here. You better repent. You better be ready for the King. I'm out of time. But let me ask you, have you responded with genuine repentance? Genuine repentance. Because we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all, we're going to hear it next chapter. Not just committing immorality, but lust is like committing adultery. Oh, you didn't murder, Jesus says. Oh, but I bet you've had ungodly anger in your heart. That's His standard perfection. We've all blown it. We've all sinned. And we all need to repent of our sins Because, brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. He inaugurated the kingdom. I wanted to get into this. I'm going to give you this real quick. There's an already not yet aspect of the kingdom. If you're asking, where is it? Where's the kingdom? I don't see the kingdom. Well, he inaugurated the kingdom with his words and his deeds and his salvation. He said the kingdom of God is within you. So that's how Jesus inaugurated his kingdom. He didn't consummate it yet. That's coming. But he is coming. And my question to you is, are you ready? Because He's coming. He's going to split the sky in two. He's going to consummate His kingdom where we're going to fully experience His kingdom. Where He's going to come back and He's going to get rid of all evil at that time. And then He's going to give us a glorified body. No more sin. Perfect love for the King. Devil and His angels thrown into the lake of fire. His kingdom is coming. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Father, we come before You. The King has come. He came the first time to do away with the sin of darkness and the devil's influence. He saved us from our sin. He rescued us from Your wrath. He took Your wrath away forever. We're grateful for that. He has made peace between us and God where we are forever forgiven. We can stand holy in Your sight because of our King Jesus. We're thankful. And He's given us the Spirit so that we can fight 
the good fight of faith while we're still here. But we also believe and we cherish and we long for the day when Jesus will come back. And He will. Many of us, you know, are our hearts, Lord Jesus. Many of us are grieved by this dark land. But it will not last forever. Christ, You will come. And You will consummate Your kingdom. And You will eradicate all evil. And there will be no more death or disease or the devil. We will live with You in perfect love and holiness and righteousness forever and ever. But I pray that everybody in this room is ready. I pray they're ready. I pray that they don't put it off and think to themselves, I'll deal with it tomorrow. No, their heart will only grow harder every day that they do not repent. Today is the day of salvation. So Lord, grant it. Open eyes, open ears, open hearts to receive Christ, the King. And only He, only He can give them light. Only He can save them from the darkness of sin. Rescue them from the things that we do and the things that we think, Lord. Oh, that we don't want, we hate. Only Jesus of Nazareth can come and save and deliver. So Lord, would you do that now for anybody in this room? Deliver them. Shine your light into their heart. Show them who you really are so they see, really see. And that they repent and turn and follow the light so they do not walk in darkness ever again. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.